Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 34. One of my favorite lines in the, uh, in the movie, The Princess Bride, is when the Spanish sword master, Inigo Montoya, confronts the Sicilian criminal mastermind, uh, Vizzini, about his constant use of the word, what word does he say all the time? Inconceivable, yes. Whenever something happens that shocks and surprises him, uh, he just keeps saying that word over and over again. And finally... Montoya looks at Vizzini and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, while I don't necessarily have a a, a grammatical problem with how Vizzini was using inconceivable, there are certainly words that people commonly say, but they think it means something different than what they think it means. Or they they think it means something different than it actually means, I should say. People, for example, use the word imply when they should use the word infer. Those are saying two different things. People use the word poisonous when they actually should say venomous. Yes, those words are kind of related, but they're not exactly the the same thing. And there are some words where, beyond a few laughs or a snooty look from a grammar nerd, there are actually serious consequences for getting it wrong. And one of those words is the word Christian. There are millions of people who take the label Christian and apply it to themselves. I saw one report that estimated that 2.2 billion people around the world identify themselves as Christian. And an overwhelming majority of people in America, 75% say that they're Christian. And yet, if you press, if you press these people about their beliefs, you'd see that they're all over the map. Some of these Christians believe in multiple ways to heaven. Some of them believe in salvation through good works. Some of them believe it doesn't matter how you live. Some of them believe that Jesus isn't God. Some of them believe that the Bible is not trustworthy. You've got people in this 2.2 billion that believe opposite and contrary things. And so I conclude that the reports of the number of Christians in the world is greatly exaggerated. People keep using that word Christian, but I do not think that it means what most people think it means. So, with that said, would you please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our God. Now, now Jesus here in our text does not use the word Christian But in the Bible, uh, know that the terms disciple, Christian, uh, followers of Jesus, these are interchangeable. And the purpose of what Jesus is going to say in these verses is to tell you what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, a true Christian. If there's any confusion about what a Christian is, then the best person to clear up the confusion is Christ. Mark chapter 8. And I know I said verse 34, but for context, let's back up to to verse 27. This whole section really hangs together. God's Word says, And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is, it is a... It is a weighty thing for a sinner to declare and preach the Word of God. That is a weighty thing. Father, I pray that you would give me help this morning. Father, it's a weighty thing for sinners to sit and listen and hear your voice and know it and understand it and believe it. So, Father, I pray for the the hearers this morning that, that... that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the text so that they would know what it means, so that they would believe what it says, so that they may love what it says. Father, I pray that you would do this morning what we as sinners cannot do, which is change hearts, change minds, transform thinking, renew our minds, and help us to take encouragement and courage, and delight in your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, verses 27 through 33 focus on Christology. Christology, the person and work of Christ. The focus in verses 27 through 30 in particular is the person of Christ. It's revealed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the divine king that is coming to redeem his people. And then in verses 31 through 33, we're told details about the work of Christ. We discover that this king will bring about the full expression of his kingdom through his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. We took a close look at those verses last week. So I'd refer you to the website, harbinschurch.org, if you weren't here last week for for a more full unpacking of those particular verses. But Christology is a great place to begin when we want to consider what a true Christian is, because the truth about the person and the work of Christ will inevitably have an impact on those who would be Christ people, who would be Christians. And in our text today, we discover three significant realities that will be present in the life of a genuine believer of a real Christian. And the first thing that we see is that a true Christian embraces Christ's cross. A true Christian embraces Christ's cross. We've just read in verses 31 through 33 of Jesus' teaching regarding the absolute necessity of his suffering and death and resurrection in regards to his redemptive plan. 
Again, we talked a lot about that last week, but suffice to say for this morning that Peter, like most Jews of that time, would have no room for a suffering and dying Messiah in in their theology. Real kings conquered their enemies. They were not conquered by them. And the Jews naturally saw themselves fighting on the side of the Christ, on the side of the king expelling the wicked Roman oppressors from the land and conquering with him. Hence, Peter's strong opposition to the notion that Jesus would be killed. But notice Jesus' response to Peter in verse 33. Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him, and he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is a rebuke to Peter, and it's also a challenge. If you want to think like God, Peter... If you want to be on my side, if there's going to be any unity between you and me, Peter, then you must come to terms with the fact that I'm not going to conform to your plan. You must instead, Peter, conform to my plan. You must embrace my death. What Peter and his Jewish brethren did not recognize was that Rome was not their biggest problem, and therefore a military Messiah was not their biggest solution, their perfect solution. If Peter got what he wanted, a Messiah who would immediately dispense justice to all the bad guys, then what would happen? Caesar would be, he would die on his throne. The Roman legions all over the world would be wiped out. All of the pagan peoples around Israel worshiping Zeus and Artemis and all the false gods, they would be destroyed. And on top of that, Peter... And every other patriotic Jew in Israel would be immediately incinerated. Hell would come to earth because the wages of sin is death. It's not just Emperor Tiberius that's a wicked rebel against God. Peter and his compatriots need to realize that they've been rebels too. They all equally deserve the death penalty for treason against the king of the universe. And the last thing Peter needs right now is for Jesus to draw the sword of justice. Because the scriptures say that the soul that sins shall die. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men are sinners by nature and therefore at war against God. Are hostile to God. We all want to go our own way instead of God's way. Romans chapter 6 describes man's natural condition as being a slave, a slave to sin. Man is held captive to sin and therefore also held in bondage to the result of sin, which is death. And if man is a slave to sin, if man is held captive by the darkness, then what man needs the most is not a pep talk telling you to suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and be good. What man needs is not a Messiah who comes along, draws the sword, and says, Come on, guys, join me in my fight against all the evil in the world, starting with those rascals in Rome. Instead, what man needs is a release from the captivity that will end in death and judgment. What man needs is somebody to pay the ransom that will set the captured soul free. What's a ransom? A ransom is a payment. And think about an action movie or or a thriller where the bad guys kidnap somebody and they're holding that person hostage. What are they looking for? What are they demanding in exchange for the release of the prisoner? A ransom payment. A hundred million dollars or whatever. 
And you never see in these stories the prisoner saying to his captors, Oh, $100 million? Okay, hang on, let me get my checkbook. You never see that in those stories. Typically in these stories, the prisoner is helpless. When he compares his own resources to the price that is demanded, he's as good as bankrupt. He needs somebody else to pay his ransom, somebody with the resources to do it. In the same way, the sinner is bankrupt before God, and he owes God an infinite debt because of his sin. If any man wants to pay his own ransom, guess what? He'll spend eternity paying it off in hell because his sin is against an infinite God of infinite value. That's why hell is forever. But because man has sinned, a man must pay the debt. But look around you. Do you have any neighbors, any friends, any family members with the resources to pay off your debt? How about the rich and the powerful? Does Bill Gates have the resources to pay off your debt? How about the most powerful rulers on the planet? Can they help you? The psalmist answers that question in Psalm 49. After considering the wealth and the abundance of the powerful, the psalmist writes something very interesting. He says in verse 7, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. The psalmist here considers the richest among us and concludes that they are powerless to stave off death. They cannot help anyone else. No man can ransom another, and they can't even help themselves. That's why the psalmist writes, or give to God the price of his life. And the reason why is because the debt man owes to God has nothing to do with material riches. Instead, the debt we owe to God has everything to do with justice. We deserve infinite justice for the crimes that we have committed against an infinite God. And as you look around the world, you don't see anyone else who can pay your debt because everyone else you see owes the exact same debt. We're all spiritual paupers. But God promises hope for all who recognize their spiritual poverty. What does Jesus say elsewhere? He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. But how? How shall the poor, how shall the spiritually bankrupt see the one to whom they owe so much? Who shall pay off our debts? And the psalmist gives a stunning answer in verse 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. The only one who has the resources to pay our debt, to ransom our soul from destruction, is God himself. But then one might ask, how might God pay a debt that a man owes? And the only answer can be that God becomes a man. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came into the world. And in Mark chapter 10, just a couple of, couple of sections from where we are now, Mark chapter 10, he tells you why. In Mark 10, 45, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus pays the ransom for sinners, and his payment is transferred to your account when you believe. There are two ways to live. You can either rely on your own resources and strength to pay your debt, 
and find yourself eternally in hell, or you place your hope and trust solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and find yourself debt-free, forever forgiven. This is the only way to be saved. And when Peter resists the notion of Jesus going to the cross, he's resisting it at his own peril. Now, Peter struggles with this attitude for a while, but he eventually gets this, and he preaches this, and he writes to believers everywhere many years later in 1 Peter chapter 1 that you were ransomed, there's that word ransom. see Peter got it, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spots. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The true Christian must embrace the cross of Christ. But there's more that Peter and these stunned disciples need to hear. There's more that a 21st century America full of so-called Christians needs to hear, which leads to my second thought on this text, is that a true Christian carries his own cross. It's not simply that a true Christian embraces Christ's cross, he carries his own cross. Look at Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, many people read that verse and they tend to think of it in terms of giving up things, denying themselves certain things like cigarettes or chocolates or entertainments, denying themselves certain things. But but is that what Jesus says? He says, let him deny what? Himself. Let him deny himself. The true Christian denies himself. But what does that mean? Is this like Buddhism? Buddha believed that man's biggest problem was desire. That desires, good or bad, ultimately disappoint and cause human suffering. And his answer was to kill desire. To not be attached to things. And the goal of Buddhism is nirvana. A state where you are completely extinguished and you've quenched yourself, your identity, your individuality, your personality to attain the complete cessation of everything. You could call that the ultimate self-denial. That's Buddhism. Is that what Jesus means? A kind of stoic, emotionless, passionless asceticism? Not at all. Let's, let's consider, again, the conversation between Jesus and Peter for help here. Jesus declared his revelation to Peter. Jesus revealed to Peter his way, his plan, his means through which he would bring about the full expression of the kingdom of God, and his means was through suffering and death, and Peter says, no. Peter says, this isn't going to happen to you, Jesus. Jesus had his plan. It came into conflict with Peter's plan. And instead of submitting to Jesus' way and Jesus' plan, Peter digs in his heels. And the ironic thing about this is that a few verses prior, Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the King. But as soon as Jesus says something that Peter doesn't like, that he doesn't agree with, Peter tries to assert his will over Jesus. Peter doesn't treat Jesus as Lord, 
He treats Peter as Lord. You keep using that word, Lord, Peter. I do not think it means what you think it means. And Jesus rebukes him. And then on the heels of that rebuke says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. Denying self is related to following Jesus. Denying self means to put and submit yourself, your concerns, your agenda, your plan, your preferences under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Becoming a Christian means voluntarily relinquishing the right to run your life. He is in essence demanding that our ultimate allegiance be with him. John Calvin wrote that self-denial is extensive, calling us to give up our natural inclinations and part with all the affections of the flesh, and thus give our consent to be reduced to nothing, provided that God lives and reigns in us. And sadly, there are many professing Christians that have absolutely no interest in that kind of life, no interest in following Jesus Christ and submitting themselves to his word. You probably know people like this. And if you try to urge them to follow Christ, they get mad at you and call you what? A legalist. It is not uncommon, at least in America, to encounter a school of thought in churches that would say that you can claim Jesus as your Savior without submitting to him as Lord. They would say, you can believe in Jesus and be saved, and then you can go on living as you were with no change of direction in your life whatsoever. No pursuit of Christ and his ways. And maybe later on down the road, you'll have some second experience where you'll submit to Jesus as Lord. But that's optional. You can be saved without that. Friends, that kind of thinking is completely foreign to the Bible. And make no mistake, it's not simply saying Jesus is Lord. It's living it. There are many, many people who say, sure, Jesus is my Lord. And so you've got musicians who sing songs about sex and drugs and crass materialism, and they celebrate and live that kind of lifestyle, and then they hold up their Grammy Award. And what do they say? First off, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You have friends and family members who will argue with you until they are blue in the face that Jesus is their Lord and Savior, while at the same time giving themselves over without regret to life, to speech, to philosophies that are the complete opposite of what this book says. And yet Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying that the mark of a heaven-bound man, a true Christian, is not lip service. It is instead a life that is seeking to please the Father. And Jesus describes that self-denying lifestyle as taking up your cross. Taking up your cross. What does that mean? <clears throat> in our day, the cross is no big deal. People wear golden crosses on chains around their necks. They have crosses tattooed on their bodies. It's kind of a cool fashion statement. But to the first century Jew, the cross would have been an image of extreme repugnance and horror and shame. The cross was the most terrifying form of capital punishment reserved for the lowliest in society, for slaves and criminals. When they hear cross, that's what they're thinking.
If you were in first century Palestine and you saw a man dragging a large wooden stake surrounded by Roman soldiers with whips and swords, you would automatically know what that meant and where they were going. They were going to an execution site. The man was as good as dead. And the crowd would view that man with derision and scorn and disgust. The experience of crucifixion was not just meant to be painful, but shameful. Jesus Christ is calling his disciples, he's calling us, to crucify our preferences, our agendas, our plans, and exchange them for Christ. He's telling us to consider ourselves as good as dead. We are given the same idea in different words in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then in the very next verse, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. The way to not be conformed to this world, the way to live according to the ways of Christ and not the ways of the world, is to count yourself as dead already for God's sake. Take up your cross, reckon yourself dead, and then follow Him. You might say, Deemer, this this sounds like you're preaching salvation by, by works. Not at all. Not at all. You're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. However, the Bible is also very clear that one of the marks of genuine saving faith is following Christ, is going after Him. To say that you have faith in Christ and have absolutely no interest to follow Him whatsoever says that you really don't trust Him. You really don't believe Him. Take up your cross. The image of the cross tells us that one of the things we will have to put to death is our quest for fame, for glory, for acceptance by the world, and to embrace the shame and the scorn that will come with following Christ. All over the world, Christians are mocked and scorned and shamed, and in many places, they're actually put to death. And even here in our own country, Genuine Christianity is becoming increasingly, increasingly repugnant to the culture. It's not cool to be a Christian. If you, are, if you are genuinely living out Christian convictions, if you are actually living according to Christ's ways, if you are publicly standing for the things that this book says and teaches, all of what it says and teaches, I promise you, you will not receive the endorsement of the culture. If your goal is to be accepted and applauded and popular, you have picked the wrong religion. Get out while there's still time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now the Apostle Peter came to terms with this in his own life. For the sake of Christ, he endured affliction and persecution, and church tradition tells us that the end of his story on earth ended in literal crucifixion because he was a Christ follower. Now, someone may be thinking, well, this is all rather bleak and gloomy and dark. You're not doing a good job of convincing me to become a Christian, Deemer. 
Why would anyone in their right mind follow Christ? I don't want to come and die. I like my life as it is. Thank you very much. That's a good question. And Jesus gives a good answer. Leads to my third point. A true Christian recognizes Christ as the ultimate treasure. Jesus says in Mark 8.35, Forever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. To cling to your own life, to go your own way apart from Christ, to be Lord of your own life, to chase after anything else that you think will give you life will end up in loss. Only the person who actually gives up his life for Jesus and the gospel will find true life now and forever. In the 8th century... King Charlemagne reigned over the Holy Roman Empire, an empire that was not really holy or Roman, but it's a cool name, that's what they called it. Charlemagne was a great warrior, had incredible success, he achieved great honor, and he shaped European history. The story is told that about 200 years after Charlemagne's death, another emperor went inside of his tomb. He was curious to see how such a great and important king was buried. And in the tomb, he did find the body of Charlemagne sitting upright on a throne. And and, and on that old, decrepit skull sat a crown. And in his lap was found not a sword, not some fancy family heirloom, but a copy of the Scriptures. And Charlemagne's finger was resting on the Scriptures. He had directed that he be buried that way. And the finger was pointing to Mark chapter 8, where we're at right now. This old bony finger that belonged to a man who was once considered master of the world, the most powerful and wealthy man on the planet, that decaying finger was resting on, guess what verse? Mark chapter 8, verse 36, that says, For what does it profit a man? to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Quite profound and a little creepy at the same time. Some translations say forfeit his life. That word soul means life. Your very essence, your personhood, losing your soul suggests the very destruction of your person in hell, forever cut off from Christ. And Jesus, in his question, wants us to imagine a man who gets all the money and wealth and fame and social acceptance and pleasures that the world has to offer, but in the process, he loses his soul. He enjoys all of the things that he can attain in this world for 80 years, and then spends the next 80 trillion years and beyond in hell forever. Is that a good deal? Is that a smart choice? Is that a good bargain? Is that a good investment and a good return on your investments? And folks, nobody can really attain the whole world. I mean, some people have come closer than others, Charlemagne being one of them, but nobody can really attain the whole world. Jesus here is using hyperbole. People trade in Jesus for a lot less than the whole world every day. But Jesus uses hyperbole to help us think about this. Even if you could gain the whole world, who would really want that? Who would really go for that if they knew in the end it would give way to eternal torments? Because Jesus asked in verse 37, 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? In other words, once you've lost your soul, once you're in hell, it's a done deal. There's nothing you can do. You have no resources to buy back your soul. You have one life to, by faith, lay hold of the ransom that Jesus paid. The offer of salvation is on the table for this life only. And don't think, well, maybe I'll just live it up for now for a few years and enjoy my sin. And when I'm older, I'll get serious about Christ before I die. Friends, that's a dangerous game to play. If you play that game, you're a fool. And that's not my words. That's Jesus' words. Jesus tells a parable in Luke chapter 12. He says this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain, and I'll store all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's return to the psalmist in Psalm 49. He writes, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boast. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, his soul will go down to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. In the end, it's not the way of the cross that is bleak and gloomy and dark. It's that. It's a bleak and dark picture. Don't presume upon God, my friends. Don't play that kind of game. Because you never know if this night is the night that your soul will be required of you. Hence, Jesus' stern warning in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You reject Jesus now, you will be rejected by Jesus later on. But Jesus' question, what will a man profit if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul, says more than you may initially think at first blush. Jesus is not simply making a statement about the true value of the world. He's also making a statement about the value of Christ. Jesus is essentially saying, listen, there are two treasures. On the one side, you have all the treasures and pleasures and comforts of the world. You can have everything, everything minus Jesus. That's treasure number one. On the other side, you lose it all, no health, no wealth, no social acceptance, no material comforts, none of that. But you get Jesus. That's treasure number two. Which one do you choose? Which one is most valuable? And the purpose of Jesus' question is not simply for us to come to the conclusion that hell is bad and I don't want to go there. Jesus' powerful statements are also meant for us to come to the conclusion that Jesus is really that good. And I want to go to him. 
I want to be with him. Jesus here is making amazing statements about himself and his worth. Jesus wants us to consider the worth and the value of the world. And then he wants us to realize that if we trade it it all for him, we're actually trading up. And not just in heaven, but now. When you believe on Jesus and receive him, you get eternal life now. And what is eternal life? Jesus says in John 17 that eternal life is knowing Jesus. And Jesus is saying that knowing him is better than having the whole world. Who believes that? And what we are seeing in Jesus' statements and challenges is that he is very different than Buddha. Buddha says you need to kill all of your desires and detach yourself from all treasures and pleasures. Jesus is calling you to do something very different. Jesus is calling you to turn away from inferior treasures like money, like fame, like sin, like the American dream, like a Christless, crossless life. Turn away from those things and turn to him and embrace the superior treasure and the superior pleasure, Jesus Christ and knowing him. Buddha says, No pleasure, no treasure, no desire. Jesus says, no, you go for broke, you go for the best thing, you go for me. The way of the cross is a difficult road. We as Christians are promised pain and difficulty and affliction and persecution. We as Christians lose much when we throw in our allegiance with Christ. Through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. Christians are a people who are sorrowful, the Bible says... But Christians are a people who are always rejoicing, the Bible says. Why? Because Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The true Christian is like that man in that parable who suddenly stumbles upon a treasure of infinite value, and though he may lose everything else in the process of getting that treasure, of getting Jesus, he nevertheless has great joy because he knows that the treasure that he now has is better than whatever is lost. It's an infinite upgrade. So a true Christian embraces Christ's cross. A true Christian carries his own cross. A true Christian recognizes Christ's As the ultimate treasure. I should probably also just throw in there. It's not in your notes. But that a true Christian is not perfect. Some of y'all probably sitting here feeling very guilty this morning. True Christian is not perfect. We're all growing in this. We're all learning to more and more deny ourselves. We, We are growing in our appreciation of how valuable Jesus really is. Sometimes we get that wrong. We get that wrong a lot. Every time we sin, we're valuing something in that moment more than Jesus. We're growing in those things. That's the key. We're growing. We're moving in that direction. It's not not about perfection. It's about a new direction. And thank God that since we have embraced the cross, his shed blood covers those many times that we have failed. The Apostle Paul writes this encouraging word in Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But nevertheless, if you are a Christian, I hope and pray that God will use this message to remind you of who you really are and to embrace that all the more, what God has called you to.
and to go after that. But I wonder if there's somebody else here right now who is having an epiphany moment. Maybe you're realizing that though you have claimed to be a Christian, you are far from that. You don't embrace the cross as your only hope for salvation. You've been unwilling to deny yourself and submit to the lordship of Christ. Maybe you've come to realize that you don't treasure Christ at all. If that's you, I have good news for you. A ransom has been paid, and if you trust in the Lord Jesus right now, you'll find that your debt has been paid in full. You know, it's easy for me to stand up here and talk about Christ being worth more than health and wealth and a comfortable life. I'm relatively healthy, and I'm wealthier than the majority of the world, and I have a life full of many comforts. So I'd like to close with words from a suffering disciple who was way more familiar with affliction for Christ than me, namely the Apostle Paul, a man who at one time despised Jesus but came to embrace the cross of Christ, recognizing that it was his only hope for salvation. He carried his own cross and followed Jesus, and in exchange for getting Jesus, what, what did he get and what did he lose? He, he lost a comfortable and respectable life as a Pharisee, as a religious teacher. He lost the respect of his peers. He got hardship and suffering. He got jail. He got hounded and hunted and beaten. He eventually got his head removed. Did Paul believe it was worth it? Did he believe that in Jesus he actually got something better? Paul writes this, from jail nonetheless, and Philippians. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There are many people who keep using that word Christian. I hope now you think it means what it really means. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much that a ransom has been paid for your people. We were lost and we were held in captivity. We had not the resources to save ourselves. And yet, Father, you sent your Son into the world to do what we could not do, which was bring about rescue. And, Father, for those of us now who have been liberated, Father, I pray that you would, you would uh, let this challenge from Jesus... Uh, be considered uh, more than ever to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. To lose our life for your sake. Father, thank you for being patient with us as we grow into a life like that. Father, I pray for those this morning who have come here, and maybe now, if there's anyone here that realizes, boy, I thought I knew what a Christian was, but I really didn't. Father, I pray for that person that you will bring them to faith this morning, and that they would realize the superior treasure that is in Christ, 
and they would be willing to turn aside from all other pursuits and go hard after you, placing their sole trust and hope in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.